Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This one is being recorded on Veterans Day, November 11th, for the listening week that begins the 12th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. And in honor of Veterans Day, the first article you will be hearing comes from a fall edition of ARP magazine, War Hero, Woman of Letters, Vet Fanny McClendon's World War II unit receives long overdue recognition. This doesn't, oh, this I believe is as told to Robin Weston by Fanny McClendon. When I was in high school, my favorite subjects were history and geography. I just couldn't wait to see the places I had read about. That's why, after I graduated, I enlisted in the Army. My mother didn't think it was a good idea, but I had a mind of my own. The military was still segregated at that time, and I was assigned to the first all-black, all-female United States Army unit to be deployed overseas. We served in Europe during World War II as the 6,888th Central Postal Directory Battalion. We had an important job to do. Our soldiers in Europe weren't getting their letters and packages delivered. There was a backlog of two to three years, and mail is the thread that keeps our service members connected to their families back home. Our battalion was determined to bring some cheer and hope to our soldiers. So when we first arrived in Birmingham, England, pardon me, that's Birmingham, that's correct, England, we worked in round-the-clock shifts seven days a week, and in only three months we cleared up a backlog of around 17 million pieces of mail. That was two times faster than the Army thought we could get it done. During the war, we also served in France, and after the war, I joined the Air Force. I was in line to become a squadron commander, but every time I got assigned, they would send me for more training. But that's all right. At training camp in Cheyenne, Wyoming, is where I met my late husband, Roy. And eventually, I did get that promotion. I became the first woman to lead an all-male squadron in the Strategic Air Command. All told, I was in the service for 26 and a half years and never thought about getting any special honors. I am amazed that I'll be receiving the Congressional Gold Medal for our service during the war. Every member of the 6888th will receive one I'm only sorry that, out of more than 800 battalion members, only a handful of us are still living to see this day. I'm grateful to have lived an amazing life, but what matters most is what all those letters represented, staying connected to the ones we hold dear. Retired Air Force Major Fanny Griffin McClendon, 101 years old, lives in Tucson, Arizona.
And next, from that same edition of Art Magazine, an appreciation for Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry is Flying High, written by Harriet Cole. The actor-producer has parlayed his comic character Medea into a stratospheric career as the billionaire head of a studio empire, but with his great success, he says, comes great responsibility. A side box here says, We honor Perry's charity. ARP is presenting Tyler Perry with an honorary ARP Purpose Prize Award for his leadership of the Perry Foundation, which strives to transform tragedy into triumph by funding a variety of human services and arts organizations. The award honors extraordinary people, 50 and older, who tap into the power of life experience to build a better future for us all. In July, ARP awarded purpose prizes to five other changemakers. Learn about that and more at arp.org slash purpose prize. The first time I met Tyler Perry in 2008, what struck me most about his perfectly appointed Atlanta studio were the clocks. Everywhere I looked, I saw them. My team from Ebony Magazine told me that Pardon me. My team from Ebony Magazine was told that Mr. Perry, everyone in his orbit addresses him formally, was always on time, meaning early, and that we should follow suit. Perry was uber serious that day. I don't recall that he cracked a smile once, which was notable given that he was best known for having created and embodied the comic character Medea, a no-nonsense auntie who anchored a run of successful plays and films. Back then, the actor, writer, director, and producer seemed like a man on a mission. Fast forward to this past May, when I ventured back to Atlanta to visit Perry in his latest studio apartment, a 330-acre spread that he opened in 2019. Now a certified billionaire, a best-selling author, and the creator of 24 feature films, Perry seemed far more relaxed. He has all kinds of success to buoy him. Along with the blockbuster Medea series, he has written, directed, and produced TV series such as Owns, The Haven, pardon me, The Haves and The Have-Nots, and BET's The Oval. As an actor, he's played everything from an action hero in the 2012 thriller Alex Cross, to Colin Powell in the 2018 satire Vice. Long a mega-celebrity in the African-American community, Perry is gaining popularity with a broader audience, and his studio provides hundreds of production jobs, as well as opportunities for performers, writers, and directors. Perry, 52, arrived at our interview in a white Hummer, Wearing a sparkling smile, the six-foot-six-inch entertainer unfurled himself from the vehicle, strode past my extended hand, and wrapped me in a warm hug. But some things haven't changed. He was right on time. We talked about the release of his upcoming Netflix film, A Jasmine's Blues, as well as the philanthropy for which he is receiving an honorary ARP Purpose Prize Award this year. Fiercely protective of his family's privacy, 
Perry still talked a bit about his seven-year-old son, Amon, whom he shares with former partner Salila Bekele. That's probably Jalila Bekele. But we started by discussing a better-known part of his history, the difficult childhood that inspired his very first play and the dogged ambition that made it a hit. The following is a Q&A, which may be edited for length. Your success began with black audiences who packed Chitlin Circuit Theaters in the 2000s to see your touring plays. Why did you choose that route instead of striking out for Broadway or Hollywood? I grew up in Louisiana, and my mother grew up in the Jim Crow South. She didn't have a healthy trust of white people. Because of the things that she had endured, horrific things, she wanted me to know the value I had within me. I never felt like I needed to look outside of my own race for success. I knew that if I mined what was in our community, what I had in me, it would work. You've talked about growing up with an abusive alcoholic father in an area rife with poverty and despair. So many people aren't able to escape that kind of environment. Why do you think you were able to get out? I have some survivor's guilt about that because there are a lot of people I went to school with who did not make it, who ended up in prison, who ended up murdered, especially during the time of that crack cocaine infusion into America. I credit my getting out to my mother, my aunts, my grandmother, all these incredible women who prayed and taught me things and believed in me. Had I not had their examples and their straight-up backbone, their insistence that I make something of myself, I don't know where I'd be. You hit bottom before any of this success was within your reach. Can you take us into that moment? It was the early 90s here in Atlanta. I had this dream of being a playwright, and I had written a play called I Know I've Been Changed which was about child abuse survivors and the power of prayer. I was working as a bill collector, and I had saved $12,000. I spent all of my money to put this play up, and it didn't work. I lost it all. After that, I tried again many, many times to produce the play. I would get different jobs between those times, but I'd quit to work on the play, and I ended up homeless. For three months, I lived in a Geo Metro that I was hiding from the repo man. The despair, the suicidal thoughts, the overwhelming feeling of not wanting to live in that kind of moment, that was real. And yet you never gave up, and the play succeeded. That never give up thing came from my mother and my aunts and the ministers and preachers in my family. I can trace the preachers back to slavery, my great, 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 great-grandfather was a minister. That faith is in my DNA. How did you get from that moment to this one? The seed was planted when I was nine or ten years old. My father was a subcontractor. He came home one day and was happy because he had made $800 building a house. But he told me that the white man who owned the house later sold it for $80,000. That didn't make sense to me. I wanted to know the, pardon me, I wanted to be the owner of the house. You've been a big proponent of ownership, especially after your intellectual property. 
oh, pardon me, that's especially of your intellectual property. How did you maintain that ownership once you started working in Hollywood? I was able to make some incredible deals by allowing people to underestimate me. I always played it small, listened to what they had to say, and made the deal. I'd say, well, I've got to own it. They'd say, oh, okay, whatever. They didn't think that my first film, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, which debuted at number one, was going to amount to much, but the support I had from the audience that knew me, those voices, those standing ovations, gave me the confidence to understand that it's a blessing to be hidden. And you now employ many people. Thousands of people come through the gate every day to work here, and it's a beautiful thing. Uh, a lot of them are former prisoners who wouldn't have had this shot. Your studio is housed in a historic location. Can you tell me about that? The land itself was once a Confederate army base, which meant there were people here fighting to keep my ancestors enslaved. From the moment I walked onto the property, I was haunted by it. Sometimes, when I'm walking here at night, I get a chill from all the things that have happened here. So, as we built each of the twelve sound stages, we buried Bibles underneath them as a way of refocusing the spirit of the place. I wanted this to be a place where everyone was welcome. You have given a lot of black actors a chance or a second chance. Your roster includes Taraji P. Henson, Viola Davis, Viola Davis, Idris Elba, and then there's Cicely Tyson. I've never said this publicly, but I took care of Miss Tyson for the last 15 years of her life. She was a proud woman, and the only reason I mention this is because she wrote it in her book. This woman had done so many amazing things, but she wasn't well compensated for it. She made $6,000 for Sounder, you know. I wanted to make sure she knew that there were people who valued her. So she did one day of work on my 2007 film, Why Did I Get Married? I paid her a million dollars. I loved working with her, and it makes me feel great that I was in a position to give this incredible woman some security in her later years. Pardon me, that's in her latter years. Oprah Winfrey is a godmother to, pardon me, Oprah Winfrey is a godmother to your son, and she was your business partner during your collaboration on the Oprah Winfrey Network, OWN. When she was struggling with her network, I said, I can help you. Finally, she said, let's see what you can do. I brought scripted material to the network with the crime drama series, The Haves and the Have-Nots. It ran for eight seasons and is still the highest rated show that was ever on the channel. For Oprah and me, it was important to show black people that you can work together, that powers can come together and be successful. Every time I talk to a black man who has a son, this is a question, I ask, how do you protect your child? What do you teach your child about becoming a man? Answer. I haven't had the conversation with Amon because he's only seven, and I want to hold out as long as I can. I don't want to tell him that there are people who will judge him because of the color of his skin, because right now he's in a school with every race, and all these kids are in their purest form. When he describes his friends, he never defines them by race. 
So the moment he loses that innocence, it's going to be a very, very sad day for me. I know it's coming, though, because he's already asking some really tough questions. What I want him to be more than anything is somebody who sees injustice, speaks out against it, and affects change. Your mother, Maxine, passed away in 2009. You're, you've told stories about the way she and her girlfriends would talk when they got together, and the way humor was a kind of anesthetic for her pain. I'd watch them play cards on Friday nights. There would be so much laughter in the room. I didn't know at the time, but I was in a comedy master class watching all of those women. Tell me about forgiving your father whom you support but don't spend time with. What helped me get to a place where I could forgive him for all the abuses is that I found his life story. It made me understand that we are, pardon me, that we all arrive at a place from somewhere. His childhood was full of abuse. I had an opportunity to either carry that on to another generation or dig it up and cut it at its root. The thing that allows you to get to the root, to really get down in there and pull that up, that's forgiveness. You are very private about your personal relationships. Why? Because these people are not famous. My son's not famous. I want him to have as normal a life as he can. I want him to know what it's like to have his own name and his own life and not have the pressure of trying to live up to whatever or whoever your father was. And Galala Bekele, your former longtime partner, what would you like to share about her? She's an incredible mother. Galila runs the Perry Foundation, which has allocated millions of dollars to grassroots charities that benefit children, families, and communities globally. What was your impetus to create the foundation in 2006? When you've been given a lot, you have to do a lot, and the need is great. I've tried to align myself with people who have the same sensibility when it comes to helping others. My mother put it in me. I would wake up in the morning and get out of bed, and I'm stepping on someone who's sleeping on the floor. I'd ask, who's that? And my mom would say, they needed a place to stay. She didn't have much, but what she did have, she shared. As I do this work, I'm always thinking of her. What advice do you have for people who have a dream like yours? Listen, I would love to say follow my example, but I would never do that. There are no guarantees. You can be as talented as you pardon me, as talented as you want to be, and if things don't line up, it's never going to happen. There are many people way more talented than I am who didn't make it. I had some grace and some favor from God. I didn't do it all. I just did the work. But I had no other choice than to follow my dream. I had no other strategy. I had one thing, and that was that first play. It had to work. I wasn't going to write another play if that one didn't work. So I had to wait and hope and pray for that to happen. For me, humility stays very present because I remember living in that car. You know, I don't care if I'm on my plane at 40,000 feet in the air, I still remember those moments and I also understand 
that if something goes wrong at that 40,000 feet, ain't nobody going to help me but God. Last question. Who is Tyler Perry today? I'm Maxine's baby. I am defined by everything she put in me. She was the kind of woman who tolerated or accepted nothing but your best. And I'm Amon's father. All of this other stuff is really great. But the thing that gives me motivation every day is being Amon's father. Next you'll be hearing some shorter pieces from theroot.com. This one was posted on the 11th, written by Keith Reed. Here's more proof that Republicans love handouts until black people benefit. Black women are creating more new jobs than anybody, so why is a group called Job Creators Network trying to hurt them? One of the worst modern political myths is that of the job creator, a caricature that's supposed to represent entrepreneurs and small business owners who would do just fine if only government would do away with regulations and taxes. The job creator drives the American economy, but they can only do so if the free market, by way of their own hand, can do whatever it wants where prices, wages, and work rules are concerned. It is true that small businesses account for an outsized share of new employment opportunities in the country, but the political hucksters who love invoking job creators as a class tend to conveniently ignore how the policies they favor hurt the same people most likely to enter that entrepreneurial class and create the jobs that sustain many communities. This is a story about student loan debt cancellation and the liars who have managed to at least temporarily derail it. Specifically, I'm talking about a group called the Job Creators Network Foundation, which calls itself, quote, a nonpartisan organization founded by entrepreneurs who believe the best defense against bad government policies is a well-informed public, end quote. But in truth, leans hard to the political right. JCNF is the money behind the plaintiffs in Myrna Brown et al. versus the U.S. Department of Education, who argued that the Biden administration's plan to wipe out up to $20,000 in student loan debt for some borrowers wasn't fair to them because they weren't included. That's right. While U.S. District Judge Mark Pittman ultimately declared the program unlawful, based on arguments from the plaintiff's lawyers that it violated the Administrative Procedure Act's Basic Notice and Comment Clause. The second page of the lawsuit reveals why the plaintiffs were really mad. And here's that quote. Plaintiffs are just a few of the millions of Americans who are being harmed by the department's arbitrary decision-making Plaintiff Myra Brown does not qualify for debt forgiveness because the debt forgiveness program does not cover commercially held loans that are not in default. And Plaintiff Alexander Taylor does not qualify for the full amount of debt forgiveness because he did not receive a Pell Grant when he was in college. If the department is going to pursue debt forgiveness, plaintiffs believe that their student loan debt should be forgiven too. Ms. Brown believes it is irrational, arbitrary, and unfair to exclude her from the program because her federal student loans are commercially held and not in default. Mr. Taylor believes that it is irrational, arbitrary, and, un 
unfair to calculate the amount of debt forgiveness he receives based on the financial circumstances of his parents many years ago. Translation. Mommy and Daddy had cake, and therefore I don't actually need student loan relief, but if I can't get it, nobody should. Meanwhile, as many as 40 million people who stood to benefit from having as much as 20 grand in debt taken off their hands are now back under the gun. And guess who stands to be hurt worse? According to the U.S. Census Bureau, it's black and Hispanic women who, the government says, earn less and tend to borrow more to complete their educations. And here's where it goes further for the Job Creators Network. Black women, that same group who stood to benefit most from student loan forgiveness, are the fastest growing demographic group of entrepreneurs in the country. That's not me saying it. It's the stalwart of capitalism known as J.P. Morgan, which calculated that the number of businesses owned by black women grew by 50% in the U.S. in the five years prior to the start of the pandemic in late 2019. Black women account for 36% of all black employers and 42% of all women who set up shop between 2014 and 2019, according to J.P. Morgan's research. But they also face challenges, most significantly as it relates to access to capital. Black women founders start with less capital, have lower earnings, and their businesses average lower revenue at the startup stage than other groups of entrepreneurs. In summary, if you really wanted to do something for job creators, you'd start by helping black women. And one of the best ways you can help black women create more jobs is by lifting financial burdens from their shoulders. But of course, Job Creators Network Foundation's goal wasn't helping job creators at all. When it talks about job creation, black women aren't who they have in mind, which is why it's easy to give lip service to supporting entrepreneurs while doing the very thing that hurts the most likely group of business owners in the country the worst. Our next article written by Candace McDuffie, published on the 11th. Here's why Tupac's stepfather, Mutulu Shakur, is to be freed after decades in prison. Shakur, 72, is set to be released on parole December 16th. Tupac Shakur's stepfather, Mutulu Shakur, is set to be released from prison next month after serving more than 35 years. In October, U.S. Attorney Carlton S. Shire sanctioned a motion to release him. The decision that Shakur would be granted parole became public knowledge on Thursday. His parole is scheduled to start on December 16th. However, he will be living out his final days with family and friends. Shakur has had a history of health issues, including stage 3 multiple myeloma, a form of blood cancer that can harm the kidney and bones. Joma Muhammad, an organizer with the Malcolm X grassroots movement, had worked to free Shakur, stated, There are a lot of tears of joy. There's still disbelief because we were steadying ourselves for another denial. Now folks are excited about being able to reunite Mutulu with his family. We were crying together. It's a long time overdue. Shakur was convicted in 1988 for serving as a leader to revolutionaries responsible for armed robberies in New York and Connecticut, one of which left three people dead. 
Over the years, he was denied release several times. Authorities stated the reason behind their decisions was due to the severity of his crimes. They also said his health was not bad enough to warrant a release. Shire told Shakur when he announced his October decision, We now find your medical condition renders you so infirm of mind and body that you are no longer physically capable of committing any federal, state, or local crime. Shakur is currently being held at a federal medical center in Lexington, Kentucky, which provides care for incarcerated people. He has had COVID at least twice and has used IV feeding tubes since May, according to his attorney, Brad Thompson. Thompson said doctors working with the Federal Bureau of Prisons gave Shakur less than six months to live back in May. Next article written by Jessica Washington, published on the 11th. Still reading from theroot.com. Three ex-police officers charged in shooting an eight-year-old plead guilty to reckless endangerment. The former officers who were originally charged with manslaughter after reportedly firing in the direction of a crowd accepted responsibility. Three former Pennsylvania, pardon me, Pennsylvania police officers pleaded guilty on Thursday to reckless endangerment in a shooting that killed eight-year-old Fanta Bilitti. Pardon me, I'm not sure her last name pronunciation. B-I-L-I-T-Y. The officers were originally charged with voluntary and involuntary manslaughter after firing in the direction of a crowd leaving a high school football game, according to the Associated Press. According to the AP, officers heard gunshots outside a high school football game in the small Philadelphia suburb of Sharon Hill and began to fire their weapons. In total, officers fired off a collective 25 rounds of gunshots toward the crowd and a car they believed the original gunfire had come from. The shooting killed eight-year-old Billity. Three additional members of the crowd were wounded by police gunfire. According to the AP Press, lawyers for the three officers argued in a September hearing that their clients had not intended to harm anyone in the crowd, but regardless of their intent, Billity's death continues to haunt her bereaved family. Her uncle, Abu Billity, said, The agony we feel constantly reliving the loss of our dear Fanta, who was just eight years old when she was killed by Sharon Hill police officers, is impossible to describe with words. The district attorney originally charged the men, Sean Dolan, Devon Smith, and Brian Devaney, with more serious offenses. Tragically, our investigation has now determined that there is a high probability that the responsive gunfire of the Sharon Hill police officers struck four victims, including the shots that killed eight-year-old Fanta and wounded her sister, said the DA in a written statement in September of 2021. But on Thursday, the former officers simply pled guilty to reckless endangerment, which carries a lesser sentence. Prosecutors told the AP they'd worked with the Fontes family, pardon me, with Fontes family on the officer's plea deal and that the family had informed them that they just wanted time to heal. After much prayer and discussion with our family, said Abu Bilati, we determined that it is our best interest 
for the district attorney to ensure that the officers take responsibility for their actions, admit to their reckless conduct, endangering many, which killed Arfanta. Next couple of articles dealing with entertainment news. This one written by Stephanie Holland, published on the 11th. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Early reactions from critics, fans, praise the film's emotional balance. The highly anticipated sequel has movie audiences talking about grief, loss, and family. After years of waiting, Black Panther Wakanda Forever has finally arrived, and the first reactions are mostly positive. It's a truly beautiful, moving film that's also a fun, action-packed spectacle. Initial critics' reviews are great, but pardon me, with the film currently holding an 85% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. A common thread for those who've seen the film is the strength of its cast, with The Root senior editor Jay Connor writing this. While there isn't an instruction manual on how to hold up a $1.3 billion juggernaut in the absence of its lead character, Black Panther... Pardon me, I think I misread that. Um, that was manual on how to follow up with a $1.3 billion juggernaut. Black Panther Wakanda Forever provides the blueprint on how to excel in doing exactly that, thanks to a masterfully constructed ensemble cast and an underlying theme brimming with emotion and relatability. As brilliant as the cast is, Chadwick Boseman's absence is felt throughout the movie, but it's in the same way that you remember a loved one with Moira MacDonald of the Seattle Times writing, Bozeman's T'Challa is a spirit that lovingly haunts the film. Even with all the emotional weight involved in the project, no visit to Wakanda would be complete without highlighting the extraordinary work of Oscar-winning costume designer Ruth E. Carter and production designer Hannah Beechler. This time around, we get a completely different look at Wakanda's capital and its people, with the duo once again effortlessly blending the grounded traditions of the country with its technological advances. Entertainment Weekly's Leah Greenblatt writes, Their shared vision of Afrofuturism feels lush and joyful and beautifully specific, set against the usual white noise of Marvel fanfare, even, or almost especially, in darker moments, like the pristine rituals of a funeral scene. Following the film's Thursday night previews, fans flocked to social media to praise the cast and crew, share their thoughts, and process their feelings as a community. The emotional impact of the movie led to unexpected audience reactions, with one person tweeting, There was a moment when the crowd of 300 fell completely silent. No music, dialogue, popcorn bags, drinks, talking. Never experienced anything like that before in a theater where everyone was 100% respecting the moment. Chills. Another moviegoer appreciated the film's special place in the franchise, writing, I don't know I can rank hashtag Black Panther Wakanda forever in a hierarchy, but this movie is definitely a top-tier movie standing on its own legs. One fan celebrated how surprising the movie's plot is and how well done the story beats are, tweeting, Hashtag Black Panther Wakanda Forever is truly one of the Marvel's best movies, pardon me, one of Marvel's best movies. 
I came into the movie not really knowing what to expect, and it threw me into an emotional roller coaster. The plot line was definitely something I was not expecting at all in the best possible way. You can see all very well done. And next article written by Chanel Janai, published on the 10th. Chris Rock to become the first ever comedian to perform live on Netflix. Will he delve into the slap heard around the world as he's previously mentioned during this special? Whether or not you deem Chris Rock a king of comedy, Netflix has just deemed the artist worthy of becoming the first ever comedian to perform live on its platform. The first ever live global streaming event is set to take place sometime in early 2023. Thought additional details, pardon me, I think that should be though, additional details are being kept to a minimum at this time. This will be Rock's second special with the popular streamer, his first having been released back in 2018, which was titled Chris Rock Tambourine. The forthcoming event also aims to build upon the streamer's success with live comedy events. One may recall the multi-day, multi-city Netflix is a joke comedy event that took place earlier this year. Said Netflix Vice President of Stand-Up and Comedy Formats, Robbie Praw, of the decision to tag Rock in on this new venture, Chris Rock is one of the most iconic and important comedic voices of our generation. We're thrilled the entire world will be able to experience a live Chris Rock comedy event and be a part of Netflix history. This will be an unforgettable moment, and we're so honored that Chris is carrying this torch. As we've been reporting here at The Root, Rock has been bouncing from city to city on his Death to Ego tour, often referencing and cracking a few jokes about the now infamous Will Smith Oscars slap that transpired back in March. However, he remained adamant that he wouldn't discuss it until he got a bigger platform, namely Netflix. People expect me to talk about this BS. I'm not going to talk about it right now. I'll get to it eventually on Netflix, he said on a tour stop earlier this year. Well, it looks like he got what he wanted after all. It'll be interesting to see if he keeps his word and delves deeper into the events that happened that night and just what date Netflix will set for the special. Seeing as how the 2023 Oscars are set for next March, I wouldn't be surprised if this takes place near that time. Next, moving to the New York Times Still Entertainment News. This was published November 3rd, written by Dave Itzkoff. John David Washington gets an education in the piano lesson. The actor adds to his body of knowledge with a starry production of the August Wilson play and a once-in-a-lifetime moment with Robert De Niro on Amsterdam. You cannot show up more prepared than John David Washington, cannot outmaneuver him, and cannot get ahead of him. If you think you have arrived on time for your lunch appointment with him, you will find he has already been waiting for you. He has, in fact, been sitting quietly at a table at Bubby's for 15 minutes in his perennially prompt, unapologetically eager manner. 
And now he is not just ready to eat. He is practically vibrating in his chair so he can tear through a bowl of matzo ball soup and get back to the Ethel Barrymore Theater, where he has been performing in the piano lesson. Washington is by no means a novice actor. At 38, he has already starred in films like Spike Lee's true crime drama, Black Klansman, and Christopher Nolan's mind-bending, time-twisting adventure, Tenet. But he is a newcomer to the Broadway stage, and in The Piano Lesson, he is making his debut with a demanding and poignant August Wilson play in a high-profile production featuring the husband-and-wife team of Samuel L. Jackson, who co-stars in it, and Latanya Richardson-Jackson, who directed it. Despite his lack of theater experience, Washington has drawn raves for his performance. In her review, the New York Times critic Maya Phillips wrote, Washington, in a revelatory stage debut, is a blaze of energy lighting every scene he's in. To navigate a text and a discipline that are unfamiliar to him, Washington is approaching the task like a humble rookie, ready to receive the education that it might provide, along with any bumps or bruises that might come with it. Asked why he wanted to perform in the piano lesson, Washington said, I did it for selfish reasons. This was like going back to school. This is a master class. I want to learn. I want to get beat up. He added, if I can survive, I'm going to be a much better actor than when I, pardon me, than I was before I started this. On a Tuesday in October, before the play had opened, Washington was bracing himself for the rehearsal later that afternoon. He said, we're going in for notes and preparing to get slaughtered. If his language is full of vivid, brutal metaphors, it might be because Washington is a former football player, a relentless running back for the Morehouse College Maroon Tigers, and later for the St. Louis, Ram, Louis Rams, as well as teams in the now-defunct NFL Europe and UFL. He is also, of course, a son of Denzel Washington, the decorated actor and filmmaker. John David, who lives in New York, has spent a lifetime observing his father's performances, whether as a child seeing him in Richard III at Shakespeare in the Park, or as a grown man watching him in the Broadway production of Fences, the Wilson play that his father later starred in and directed for the screen. When Denzel Washington learned that John David was getting ready for the eight shows a week rigor of Broadway, he heartily encouraged the proposition. He said, it's a full contact sport, John David, the younger Washington recalled. But when John David decided that he wanted to pursue acting after a torn Achilles tendon halted his sports career, it was impressed upon him that he'd achieve success only through hard work and not by trading on his last name. Jackson, a longtime friend of the Washington family, said that he was one of the several people who talked to the young man about the challenging path that awaited him. We all told him, you can't just step up in there and think it's going to happen, Jackson recalled. You've got to go to class. You've got to put in the work. Being the dedicated athlete that he was, he attacked it in the same way that he attacked that, and he got all he could out of it. Washington made his breakthrough on the HBO comedy series Ballers, 2015-19, to playing a hot-headed NFL star. Another crucial opportunity came when Lee chose him to star as the police detective Ron Stallworth in Black Klansman, released in 2018. As Washington saw it, 
Lee took a significant chance in elevating him from supporting roles to a lead player. Spike was like, you're not a running back, you're a quarterback. You need to call the offense and run the plays, said Washington. In 2020, he starred in Tenet, a complex thriller about characters who can move forward and backward in time. Despite Nolan's pedigree, the film's opening was repeatedly delayed by the pandemic, and it was ultimately released at a time when audiences were hardly ready to return to theaters en masse. Two years later, Washington has tried to remain sanguine about his tenant experience. I believe in God. I'm a heavy believer, so it was the way it was supposed to be, he said. But it really hurt that we couldn't give it its proper rollout and world tour. Even so, Washington said he was grateful for the trust Nolan had placed in him and for the chance to help execute Nolan's intricate vision. Washington said, as taxing as it was, it damn near broke me, but I'd do it again and again. He was given another prominent big screen position this fall when he starred alongside Christian Bale and Margot Robbie in Amsterdam, the antic period caper from the filmmaker David O. Russell. Bale found Washington soft-spoken and studious during rehearsals, but said his co-star suddenly came alive when they filmed a sequence in which their characters fled a murder scene. I kept laughing because he was clearly enjoying showing me that no matter how fast I am, pardon me, no matter how fast I ran, he could always run faster, said Bale. I kept zigging and zagging, running circles up and down the street, and he wouldn't ever let me get in front of him. Bale added, He's quietly competitive, but I don't think he likes that to be seen much. Amsterdam was a critical and commercial flop, none of which mattered to Washington, who came with one who came, pardon me, who came away with one of his most treasured memories as an actor. There was a take I did that was very emotional, he said, and afterwards Robert De Niro came over and hugged me and kissed me on the cheek, and he said, Good job, son. I will never forget that. I can die now. The piano lesson for which Wilson won the second of his two Pulitzer Prizes is part of the playwright's Pittsburgh cycle. There, in 1936, the domestic life of Bernice, Danielle Brooks, and her uncle Doker, Jackson, is interrupted by the return of Bernice's talkative and charismatic brother, Boy Willie, played by Washington, who has recently left prison. While Bernice treasures the family's piano, which carries a tragic history and is decorated with carvings of relatives who had been enslaved, Boy Willie has other plans for it, believing he can buy his way to legitimacy with the money earned from selling it. Washington said that to him the play conveyed the overwhelming feeling of American society's proprietary entitlement over its history. With a chuckle, he added that it was pardon me, that it told a relatable story about, quote, every family gathering, how there's always that one cousin or family who shows up and it's like, oh, here we go. Washington said that he started learning his lines for the piano lesson when he was in Indonesia earlier this year filming True Love, a science fiction film written and directed by Gareth Edwards. In rehearsals this fall, Washington said that Latanya Richardson Jackson advocated the utmost fidelity to Wilson's text. She always talks about how we're here to amplify his words, said Washington. Don't put too much sauce on there. Let the words charge all your decisions.
He endured a certain amount of affectionate hazing from his more seasoned co-stars. Washington recounted the time when Samuel L. Jackson and Michael Potts called him out for eating banana chips in rehearsal. Sam was like, he uttered a Jackson-esque word that can't be printed here, Boy, Willie, don't eat no banana chips. That's the young generation. He eats pork rinds. Washington said he had the quickness to retort, No, see, boy Willie's ahead of his time. The play holds a special value for Jackson, who played Boy Willie in its original 1987 production at Yale Repertory Theater. He said, however, that he did not feel particularly territorial about seeing the role passed on to Washington. He said, You can't possess things that way, and Latanya told me not to talk to him about Boy Willie anyway. She didn't want me putting my ideas in his head. In their work on the play, Jackson said he had already seen Washington grow as an actor. John David's really quite introverted, he explained. The only time he puts himself out there is when he has an opportunity to inhabit another character and be someone that's not him. What the piano lesson has given Washington, said Jackson, is a confidence that he can take into future film or TV projects. The self-assurance of knowing when you're on a soundstage or on a set and nobody's laughing or applauding you, how you feel about what you just did. You don't have to go to the monitor to prove to yourself that you did it. You'll know, okay, that felt right. These are big picture existential questions that Washington may contemplate after the piano lesson ends. For now, he is content to grapple with the day-to-day demands of putting on the play and the pleasures of losing himself in a character who feels diametrically opposed to who he really is. As he recalled, there's a line where Sam says to me, will you just be quiet? There was a night I almost cracked up the way he said it because I felt like he really meant it. Washington seemed genuinely delighted by the notion that he could be so talkative it would annoy somebody else. I must have been really rolling that night, he said. I don't do that in my real life. And still reading from the New York Times, possibly the last article for this week. From their up-close section written by Lauren Christensen. This was posted November 4th. A book review. For the women of the Black Panther Party, freedom meant survival. The book Comrade Sisters, Women of the Black Panther Party is being referenced. Free Breakfast for School Children, the Intercommunal Youth Institute, the People's Free Medical Clinics, the Free Ambulance Program, the Oakland Community School. Though the women who made up two-thirds of the Black Panther Party took part in rallies and voter registrations, newsrooms, and grassroots political campaigns, their most direct contributions have gone all but unheralded. The more than 60 community survival programs that provided neglected black Americans with life-sustaining meals, education, and health care. The BPP Communication Secretary Kathleen Cleaver, also the first female member of the party's Central Committee, talks with Los Angeles Panthers at the Free Huey Rally in Defrimi Park, which was rechristened by the party Bobby Hutton Park 
in West Oakland. I believe that's a caption to a photograph that's included here. They also have another Gloria Abernathy sells the Black Panther newspaper at the Mayfair supermarket boycott in 1971. Evan Carter, the widow of Alprentice Bunchy Carter, pardon me, teaches children of the Black Panther Party at the Intercommunal Youth Institute, the first full-time Liberation Day school in Oakland, 1972. These are all, at this point, captions to photographs here. Adrian Humphrey tests a woman for sickle cell anemia during Bobby Seale's campaign for mayor in Oakland, 1973. Continuing with the article, these programs demonstrated that freedom is far more than a checklist of formal rights. Angela Davis writes in the foreword to Comrade Sisters, Women of the Black Panther Party, published by ACC Art Books. Because the media tended to focus on what could be easily sensationalized, Davis continues, i.e. the predominantly male targets of government and police abuse, there has been a tendency to forget that the organizing work that truly made the BPP relevant to a new era was largely carried out by women. The book rewrites the record through images and testimonials of the women who as teachers, students, writers, musicians, medics, mothers, daughters, aunties, worshippers, factory laborers, and so much more, grew a movement by taking the well-being of the community into their own hands. The comrade sister Cheryl Dawson put the call to action plainly. I joined the pan- pardon me, I joined the Black Panther Party because my soul was on fire. And once again, the title of that book, Comrade Sisters, colon, Women of the Black Panther Party, published by ACC Art Books. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. Programming from AINC is made possible from funding from the City of Thornton Community Development Block Grant. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.